You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Today's scripture comes from Acts 16, verses 25 through 34. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself, since he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul called out in a loud voice, Don't harm yourself, because all of us are here. Then the jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he escorted them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the message of the Lord to him, along with everyone in his house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right away, he and all of his family were baptized. He brought them up into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he had believed God with his entire household. This is God's word. Good morning, everybody. I am super pumped to be reading and going through this particular chapter uh, with y'all. Feels like it's kind of a, it's a little bit of a fresh start. Uh, for kind of Paul's ministry. I mean, we've looked at the past couple weeks how there's been a lot of conflict that's arisen in the church. You have this whole discussion over, you know, circumcision and what does it mean, and there being a lot of consternation over that. You have Paul and Barnabas experience a relational split and head off kind of in their separate directions. And this chapter kind of gets, gets us back to basics. And that's the cool thing about life as a Christian is you never get beyond your basics. Paul like wrote, I don't know, half the New Testament, but he was always captivated with the gospel. Like he could have throughout his years in ministry and development in the Christian faith, you know, he could have, he could have not focused as intently as he did on the gospel, but he never lost focus. So that's kind of what I want to go over today with us is some of the some of the gospel basics that Paul really really never got beyond no matter what he was experiencing no matter what he was going through he never got beyond the gospel that was his root his foundation and ultimately the sustenance for his faith um and so kind of right off the bat I just kind of want to look back a little bit to the end of the previous chapter where we saw a lot of relational hardship between Paul and Barnabas. Um, I think it's really cool that the gospel kind of served to, to move Paul in such a direction as a result of this relation, relational hardship. Like, Paul and Barnabas had been serving together, had had basically been together for years. They were peers. They were brothers. They leaned on each other and relied on each other. And now you kind of have them going their separate ways. So again, I just want to encourage us as believers that even in the midst of relational hardship, 
even if that results, I mean, in the case of Paul and Barnabas, a little bit of a rift, a little bit of a split. They didn't serve together for years after this. Paul spent years on this journey. Barnabas went his separate ways too. That God was fruitful in both of their ministries, even through the result of something like relational conflict. As we see in this particular journey, I just thought this was incredible that Paul is going to visit Philippi, he's going to visit Corinth, he's going to go to Thessalonica, and he's going to go to Ephesus all for the first time. That's 22% of your New Testament books, roughly, that came as a result of what God did and started through this missionary journey. And it started because of because of a split, because of a relationship that went its separate ways. And so I just kind of want to encourage us as believers, relational hardship happens. Like maybe not to the intent of a split, but that can happen too. And I want to kind of focus this back to the fact that just as we sung in our last song, like even what like the enemy means for evil, God turns it for our good. Like God does not want <laughs> relational hardship for us, but if it happens, he's got a plan for it and he's going to use it. And ultimately, he even uses those circumstances not just to maintain our faith, but to sustain it, to actually give us sustenance in the gospel through what he does, what he does through the circ- all the circumstances of our life. And so I think that's what Acts 16 really is all about. That he shows us through his word that he does sustain us in our faith and in our work. And look, it's really cool, guys, that God does this at all. Like, he doesn't have to do this. Like, he doesn't have to sustain us. He doesn't have to grow us in our faith, even through the midst of pain and suffering and tribulation and trials like we see in this particular chapter but he does. He does it. He does it through both good circumstances and bad circumstances. God is always at work and he can always be trusted to work. And so that's true even if you're having a hard time seeing that today. Like if you've come here and you're having a tough time seeing how God's working in your life, he's working. Like that's what this chapter is about. Even if even if life takes you in a million different directions and a million different places and, and there's good times and bad times, like God is always working. So I just want to really encourage us with that today. But again, I want to focus on how he sustains us. How does he sustain our faith? Well, he just takes us back to the fundamentals of what faith is. He takes us back to the fundamentals of the gospel. And so really and truly, I want us to see in this particular text today that there's three questions that this text answers for us. Three gospel basic questions that we never get beyond as Christians and that God uses to sustain our faith time and time again throughout our entire lives. So those three questions are, what is the gospel? This chapter provides us an incredibly concise definition of what the gospel is. And so I just want us to meditate on that a little bit. The second thing is, who is the gospel for? There's a bunch of different people who get to encounter the gospel as a result of what Paul and Silas do in, their, in the beginning of their second ministry journey. 
And so I want to point us to who is the gospel for? And then thirdly, what does the gospel give? The gospel gives us particular things that this chapter highlights, again, that are essential to our sustenance in the Christian faith. And that's how God works. And so I won't be going entirely formulaically through the text, but I will be going through and seeing how the text answers these particular questions. Uh, So I'm excited to get started. Um, And I hope you all are too as you have Acts 16 uh, open in front of you. So question number one, what is the gospel? This is the most basic question that the Christian should know the answer to. And if you're a Christian today, that knowing that answer is essential to the sustenance of your faith. And it's not just like a, like a head knowledge, right? It's not like just a question and answer like, if you kind of hear it, you just kind of throw it out there. I'm talking about like knowledge that's worked, it worked itself all the way down deep into your heart, that dwells in your innermost being. That's where the answer to this question for the Christian needs to reside. So how does Acts 16 define the gospel? Well, it defines it in three ways. One is salvation through the Lord Jesus. And I'm going to read real quick from uh, verses 30 and 31. And we've already read this, but I'm going to highlight for us again. Starting in verse 30, it says, Then he escorted them out and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. That's the most basic truth of the Christian. The Lord Jesus saves people. So today, if you believe that Jesus is Lord over all things and Lord over your life, you have been saved by him because of who he is. And we just read Colossians 1, 15, uh, 1, 15 through 22 and 23 that really focuses on the fact that Christ is the head over all things. He is over all rulers and powers and authorities and he created all of them and through him. He, he created all of them and, he, and they were created through him. And not only that, but he holds them all together. Like he is preeminent over all things. It's like... Um, I don't know, uh, Infinity Wars, right? Uh, the Marvel movie, I don't know if all of y'all have seen it. I think it's that one, or it might be the next one, Endgame, where Thanos says, I am inevitable. Like, that's Jesus. Like, that's Jesus' statement. He is inevitable. He is eternal, past, present, future, king over all things, ruler over all things. And I love at the end of that particular little section that we read in Colossians 1 is that Jesus used his lordship to do a very specific thing in history. And that is to reconcile all things to himself through the blood of his cross. Like Jesus had all authority, all power, all honor, all preeminence over everything, created everything. Everything is created through him and for him. And he used that to reconcile people through his blood on the cross. And I want to look real quick. I don't have this in the slide, but I'll, I'll flip to it here in my Bible. That he does this in a specific way, which it talks about in Colossians 2.14. It says he erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. And I love how you can connect 
what what is said about Jesus in Colossians 1 and how that relates specifically to John 1 where Jesus is described as God's word. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and he did it by speaking. He did it by saying something. So when he spoke, things happened. Objective realities came into being. Things like the heavens, the earth, the sky, time. Everything came into being just by speaking. So if Jesus, as God's word, poured out his blood on the cross for us, his blood then is saying something. He is accomplishing something as God's word. And he's creating an objective reality. He's creating salvation from sins because of what his blood has done on the cross. Him as God's word, the one who has created all things, spoke something into being on the cross. And that reality is salvation from sins. And so that is an immovable, undeniable, foundational reality for us as Christians. That Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is Lord using that lordship to save us from sins. So that's part one. Part one of the gospel as we see in this chapter. Part two is kind of the flip side. And we're just going to have a, a little bit of a different focus on this one. Um, but, but the second part of this particular question, the answer there is faith in the Lord Jesus. And so if you, if you pull it up there on the slide, I have the word believe. Because there has to be an action taken, right? Like Jesus is Lord over all things. And that reality is, the, is reality no matter what no matter what you believe. Like Jesus is still Lord, Lord over all things. He still created all things. All those things are still true, but you have a record of debt, which we saw in Colossians 2. Everyone has fallen short. Why else would people need to be saved? Everyone has fallen short of God's glory. Everyone sins. Everyone has turned away from God But God has created a way back to himself. And what he's offering the chance for us to do is to believe what he has done. Believe in him as Lord. And Jesus offers and actually accomplishes that salvation for us. So just like Paul, who was a murderer, killing Christians, saw God changed him radically, believed that gospel, just like Lydia in this particular chapter, who we'll see, just like this jailer who is, that's part of his story right here. If you're here today and you believe that Jesus is Lord, all your sin and the weight of that sin, all that knowledge that you've fallen short of him and what he has done, all of that Jesus took that up on the cross with him. That's what it says in Colossians 2, that he took sin and he nailed it to the cross. So he took that sin up on the cross with him, and his blood, which is mentioned in Colossians 1, his blood poured out and flowed and flooded and covered all of that sin. Your sin stayed up there. Jesus came down. The sin stayed up. The nails kept the sin up there, and his blood flowed over that flowed over the sins of each and every one of us who believe and takes them away. That record of debt is gone. 
because of Jesus' blood, because he used his lordship to accomplish that particular thing. And what he says is that you have to believe that. You have to believe that Jesus is Lord. You have to believe that those things are true. And if you do, guess what? It's done. Jesus did say it is finished, right? When he got up on the cross, when he gave up his life, he said it is finished. That's what he was finishing. That is what we believe in as Christians. But the call is for us to believe. And so that is the response that each of us have. Each of us have to have as a part of the gospel. The gospel is Jesus is Lord, Savior from sins. The gospel is also believe those realities. And those things will be accomplished. The third thing that I want to point out from this particular chapter about the gospel, answering that question, what is it, is it's baptism into the Lord Jesus. And I'll pull up verses, um, that's verse 33 right there. Uh, I'll read it real quick. It says, he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right away, he and his family were baptized. Well, what is baptism? Technically, the Greek word there is translated to immerse. And when, when you see in the New Testament the idea of baptism, it's you're immersed in water, you're brought back up out of the water, that's baptism. But what does it mean? What is it telling us about the gospel? And so, basically what it is, is that when we believe that Jesus is Lord, that we're not just freed from our sins, that we're just not have the record of those things taken away, but we're actually given life. That's the reality that baptism is saying. It's that through Jesus' death and resurrection that we are united with him in that death to sin and then raised up with him together in new life. So we don't just have the record of things taken away from us, but we're also given something in return. We're given life, the life that he accomplished when he raised himself from the dead. I'm going to read Romans 6, 3 through 5 real quick, because I think this is an incredible reality that Paul um, explains for us there. It says, are you unaware that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. For if we have been joined with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So that's what baptism is, is intended to, to convey the reality of. And it signifies that Jesus is the one who actually grants you life. Like baptism doesn't do that. But baptism signifies the reality of that thing happening. And that's part of the reason why Jesus was baptized back in Luke 3, if you read that particular section of Scripture. He went under the water in order to signify that he was dying, that he was going to die for our sins, that God was going to, God was going to place all of sin on him through his death. And then as he was raised up to life, that eternal life was his in God by the descending Holy Spirit, which, went, which came down on him like a dove. And those are the same things that happen for us as Christians, is that when we believe that Jesus is Lord, 
we are united with him in that baptism of being placed under the water of God's judgment. The penalty for sins taken away and raised again to new life. To live in a life in a manner pleasing to God. That's what Jesus did with his life. He, he started his ministry with that event. And the rest of his ministry was a life lived pleasing to God. He did everything the Father commanded him to. That's the type of life that Jesus now gives us through the Holy Spirit. So that's number three. Baptism into the, Holy, baptism into the Lord Jesus. And so, again, these are not, not just truths for us to kind of say, okay, that's cool. How do, the, what, how do these truths matter to us? How do they help sustain the faith that we have? How does God use those? Well, if you look at this chapter, you can see how these truths sustain Paul and Silas. You can see that they cause Paul to continue forward on his mission, despite separating from one of his closest friends and partners in ministry. They caused Paul to strengthen and encourage the faith of established churches in verse 5 and the new church in Philippi by the end of this chapter in verse 40. They moved Paul and Silas to sit in prison, stocks on their feet, not deserving to be there. And what are they doing? They're singing hymns. And we'll take a look at this in a little bit. But, And we already read it, actually. I, I'm blanking on that. But they're singing. Actually, I don't think we read that yet. They're singing that's incredible. Like they're singing and praising God. And that's, these are the things that are sustaining them in the midst of that. It's those realities, the realities of the gospel that allow them to, even when they have chains on their feet, to be free, to proclaim that gospel and to believe it and to enjoy it, no matter what is happening to them physically. And that's incredible because that means then no matter what we are going through today, no matter what you are going through today, no matter what's happening today or tomorrow or two years or 20 years from now, that the realities of the gospel, salvation from sin, faith in Jesus, eternal life will never change and will never cease to be true. And because of that, no matter what any of us are ever experiencing or facing, good or bad, that you can confidently stand on the truths of the gospel. You can confidently rely on them and to live in a manner pleasing to God and testify to that grace in every situation. And we see that happening throughout this chapter with Paul and Silas. And that's a reality for all Christians. So, that's gospel basic number one. What is the gospel? So gospel basic number two that this chapter really gets into is who is the gospel for? Who is it that can actually believe and possess these glorious truths that we've just been looking at? And not to sound too cliche with it, but it's it's everyone. Like, it's everyone. <laughs> I thought about actually doing a call and response with that, but I didn't do it. It's everyone. <laughs> but I love it because... God takes like that particular overarching statement. He's like, okay, how does it play out? Who is it actually for? How does this work in the lives of specific groups of people? And that's what chapter 16 helps us to see. There's actually five groups of people. I'll go through them as quickly as I can. But there's five groups of people that I kind of want to highlight um, this question with. Who is the gospel for? Well, the first thing I want to know that the gospel is for families. Families. 
So there's there's two sections up there. One is is the actual introduction to the chapter, verse one, where it talks about Timothy, who is going to be one of Paul's great partners in ministry now moving forward, is called the son of a believing Jewish woman. And then we've already looked at the at the jailer, but also this is true for Lydia, that when they come to believe, like they and all their household believe. They preach the gospel to their families. And the families also preach the gospel to each other. That's what verse 1 is about. So I also I love the fact that um, in verse 1 it talks about Timothy as the son of a believing Jewish woman. 2 Timothy 1.5 actually tells us her name. It's Eunice, which I think is a fun name. And it talks about his grandmother's name, Lois, as the ones who are responsible for Timothy's own sincere faith in a way. Because they were the ones who were faithfully preaching the gospel to him in such a manner as he came to faith. So families are meant to spread the gospel and receive the gospel. And I think that's a really encouraging thing because families can be incredibly difficult and incredibly difficult to navigate. They can be filled with really challenging people and really challenging relationships. But they can also be filled with really close and tight bonds that you don't really have with anyone else. So it's really encouraging to me that this gospel is meant to be shared and spread among families because belief in the gospel creates a new family. That when, I, when we get together with, with Micah's family and my family on occasion, my, Micah, uh, Micah Savelle, not Micah Scott, I'm sure he has a cre- an incredible family. I've met them. It's great. Um, but when we get together, one of the things that, that we've prayed is that there's a blessing of family twice over that they are our physical family but because by God's grace most of us have believed the gospel and have come to faith that we're also spiritual family and like my mom and dad raised me up in the church and though I didn't come to faith until college they were still faithful to portray the gospel to me the gospel is for families and I love how that the faith relationship of a mother to a son that we see in verse 1 is that the gospel is also for kids. I don't know how old Timothy was when he came to faith. Um, doesn't really say. But what I know is that Jesus also tells his disciples to let little children come to him. Because to such as these belong the kingdom of God. And we know that, I mean, my sister Anna, she came to faith at age 5. Like that's when she actually had genuine saving faith. And so it's so important because the gospel is big enough to encompass and sustain your entire life, birth, all the way through old age. Like it's for adults, but it's for kids. It's simple enough for kids to believe, but it's complex enough that we'll never, ever fully comprehend the realities of it, even after eternity spent with God. But that's the beauty of the gospel. And so the kids are all upstairs, but like preach the gospel to your kids. They can understand it. And even if they're not your kids, preach the gospel to them. They can still understand it. If you got grandkids, guess what? Preach the gospel to them. And then also, I mean, what can God do? He can take the gospel preached by kids to adults and save people. Like that's the incredible reality of this. So the gospel is for, is for families. The gospel is also for seekers. That's kind of the, the second thing, the second group of people that we see. And I'll read verses uh, 11 through 15 because that's, that's Lydia's story real quick. 
says, Then setting sail from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, the next day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, a Roman colony, which is a leading city of that district of Macedonia. We stayed in that city for a number of days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river, where we thought there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. A woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was spoken by Paul. And I think that, technically I'm in the Holman Christian, that's what my Bible is, but CSB says, God-fearing woman. So, Lydia is called that in this particular section, and she gathers to to pray with other women outside on the Sabbath day. So she has an understanding of the God of Israel, of the God of Judaism. And she is trying her best as a Gentile to follow God, but she doesn't know Jesus. She only was able to, to do and obey in the way that she knew at that particular time, but she didn't know who Christ was. And so Paul preaches to her, and the Lord opens her heart to respond in faith to the gospel. And I think this is a really important group of people to notice because there's people out there who are looking to believe what is true. Like there's people seeking God and the gospel is not closed off to them. That's the wonderful thing is, is someone like Lydia would never fully be truly someone who could call themselves a Jew, someone who is ethnically and someone who is genealogically recipient of all of God's promises from all the way back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But she is someone who has access to Christ. She is someone who is looking for God, and she found him through the gospel. And so my encouragement is that as we live our lives, to look for those who are looking and to search for those who are searching because there are people out there searching who may not even have an understanding of who the God of Israel is, but they're looking for God. They're trying to find someone who who gives them a greater sense of reality than what they know. Don't turn the gospel away from these people. The gospel of God is there for them, and it's there for us as we seek. We've all sought God, and he has found us. And if you're here and and you might be still seeking you might not have come to fully know these realities yet you might be looking for God today this is who God is Christ is God Christ offers salvation from sins and so the gospel is God gospel of God is there for us to believe as seekers the third group that I want to highlight is the oppressed and this is found most foundationally in verses 16 through 25. I've got verse 16 up there, but I I do want to uh, read this section. It says, Once as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit of prediction. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, These men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are slaves of the Most High God. And she did this for many days. But Paul was greatly aggravated, and turning to the Spirit, said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. And when her owners saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, These men are seriously disturbing our city. 
they are Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. Then the mob joined in the attack against them, and the chief magistrate stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had inflicted many blows on them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to keep them securely guarded. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in stocks. So there's two types of oppressed people who are noticeable in this particular passage. I've got this one up here because it kind of gives us an idea of both. Is you have a slave girl who is possessed by a spirit. You have someone who is physically oppressed, and you have someone who is spiritually oppressed. So you have the slave girl who is a slave, the property of someone else, doing their bidding, making money for them. But she also has a spirit, a demon, which Paul ends up casting out. And then Paul and Silas themselves are also unjustly imprisoned for casting out that spirit which enslaved the girl. And notice that their racial status is used against them as one of the main reasons for them to be imprisoned. They are Jews. They're doing something that we Romans can't do. Physical oppression. Unjust imprisonment. Racial degradation. Those are the type of people that the gospel is portrayed to, proclaimed to. Because what the gospel does is it sets you free from those things. Ephesians 2 tells us that we live according to the Spirit who works in the disobedient if we're not in Christ. Without Christ, we're all spiritually oppressed. We're all under the power and influence and authority of someone who would do his level best to keep us from obeying Christ. We are all spiritually oppressed without Christ. Now, we might not all be physically oppressed, but the gospel does free you from that too. Because again, verse 25, what do we see? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. That no matter what their circumstances were, no matter what slander was thrown their way, no matter how unjust the imprisonment was, what was their response? They were going to pray and sing hymns to God. They were going to proclaim the gospel. And so, we as Christians, that's the type of response that we can have in the face of the failure of the justice system, in the face of other types of physical oppression, whether that is actually slavery. I mean, we're talking about a slave girl here, someone who is considered someone else's property. But Paul casts out the demon, and it doesn't explicitly say the slave girl's response, but in other places where we see demons cast out, typically that's, I mean, if you think about even the man who was, um, the man who was possessed by spirits so much, he lived, in, he lived in a graveyard, and there was, there was no one who could control him, no one went near him, and when Jesus cast out the spirit, where was he found? Fully clothed, sitting at the feet of Jesus. That was his response. And the correlation may not be one-to-one, but in a lot of cases, if you look at the New Testament, those who are spiritually oppressed, who are freed from that, they have a response. They have a response to actually stay with the Savior who saved them. So maybe we don't see that explicitly in this text, but we can, we can see in most cases that that might be what have happened. So no matter what the oppression is, whether that's 
spiritual oppression, no matter that's physical oppression, the promises of the gospel can sustain you even in the midst of face of all of that. They can give you life and freedom even in the midst of really, really dark circumstances. And they can help you to live graciously in spite of them. And we'll see that in a little bit. Um, but first, I want to focus on our, our first, or excuse me, our first, our fourth group of people that I see here is prisoners. And again, that's verse 25. The prisoners were listening to Paul and Silas who were praying and singing hymns to God. And so while we know that Paul and Silas didn't deserve to be there, what about, what about these folks? Well, some may be there under unjust circumstances. That's not outside the realm of possibility. But some people probably deserve to be there. And though we don't see the, the, the delineation between the two, it's probably a mix of both. Pretty safe assumption. That's, that's kind of the idea of people in prison. You're either there because you're supposed to be or you're not. Like, that's everyone in prison. <laughs> so we're just going to say there's a mix of both. But my emphasis here is, is actually on those who are there as punishment for their own wrongdoing. That Paul and Silas don't withhold, they don't reveal the gospel simply because there's people listening who are, might be considered bad people and have done bad things. What do they do? They sing and they praise God and the prisoners listen. They proclaim the gospel because there's freedom and life even for those who are in prison because they deserve to be there. And I think Psalm 107 really highlights this for us. I'm going to read a section uh, from verses 10 and 16 where it says, Others sat in darkness and gloom, prisoners in cruel chains, because they rebelled against God's commands and despised the counsel of the Most High. Again, they deserve to be there. He broke their spirits with hard labor, and they stumbled and there was no one to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And what was his response? He saved them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and gloom and broke their chains apart. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love and his wonderful works for all humanity. For he has broken down the bronze gates and cut through the iron bars. They're there because they rebelled against God. They cried out to God. What does God do? The one who justly put them where they were, saved them from that because they turned to him with their lives. That's what the gospel does. It allows us even to hold out grace and life to those who don't deserve it because that's us. None of us have deserved this gospel. All of us. We're not just spiritually oppressed, but we also actively turned from God and rebelled against him. All of us, all of us lived that. All of us did that. There's not a single person in the entirety of creation who that's not true for. But what does God do? He saves people who turn to him, who believe in him as Lord, who acknowledge him as their savior, and he saves them, even if they don't deserve it. The gospel is for the prisoner, because we are all prisoners. Group number five. This is our last little group in this particular section, and that's enemies. So I'll flip back here, go through my Bible real quick. And so we, we already read 22 through 24 that there was a mob that was joined uh, in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the chief magistrate stripped off their clothes... And then the jailer 
received orders to throw them in jail and put their feet in stocks. And then I'll, I'll stop there for a second because this last group of, of people I want to highlight, I kind of have in mind the jailer. The jailer is who I, I'm considering an enemy, and the text doesn't necessarily seem to list him as like actively you know, portraying vitriol against Paul and Silas. He's just kind of receiving orders. Now, those are unjust orders, but he receives them and obeys them. And I just wanted us to think about how often these days, if there's someone who is part of a system, who is part of some type of organization or group or party, that if someone seems to be affiliated with that and you're opposed to what those people are doing, that that person's considered an enemy. But notice what Paul and Silas do. When the earthquake shakes the foundations of the temple and immediately all the doors were open, the jailer woke up and saw that the doors of prison opened. He drew his sword and was going to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Paul and Silas didn't let him do that. They said, stop, we're all here. There's no need for you to do this. And I think about the fact then that the jailer comes to them and says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas don't withhold anything from him either. Even someone who was the one who put their feet in stocks, who put them in the dark, in prison, who carried out the orders of an unjust command. Paul did not withhold the gospel even from this man. This man who very, very easily could have been considered an enemy. Well, you put my feet in stocks. You don't deserve this life. You don't deserve the gospel. That's not Paul's response. Paul's response is, one, to save his life, physical life, and then save his spiritual one. That's the idea of what the gospel does. They offer him the life available through the gospel, even to a man who could be considered their enemy. And then if we, if we take a look a little bit later on towards the end of the chapter, the magistrates actually kind of figure out we should release these men so they give the command. And then Paul says to them in verse 37, They beat us in public without a trial, although we are Roman citizens, and threw us in jail. And now they're going to smuggle us out secretly? Certainly not. On the contrary, let them come themselves and escort us out. And so the police reported these words to the magistrates, verse 38 because they were afraid when they said Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they apologized to them and urged them to leave town. And then that's where Paul and Silas kind of depart Philippi for the first time. And I want to focus in on verse 37 because it's clear that Paul and Silas, being Roman citizens, are not pursuing their rights as Roman citizens to their fullest extent. They deserve a trial (laughs) before going into prison. They probably could have tried to push have tried had tried to push for some type of political or, or some type of retribution or revenge on these magistrates who treated them as citizens so unjustly, but they don't. They just say, let them come take us out. Kind of the a way of apologizing without saying it explicitly. Like, let them come escort us out. If they want us out, come and take us out. And they did. And apologized to them. But the point is they did not utilize their rights as Roman citizens to the fullest extent because they were intent on preaching the gospel through their conduct to their enemies. I want to read real quick from 1 Peter 3 because this is how Paul and Silas acted. 
It says, starting in verse 14 in 1 Peter 3, But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be disturbed. But honor the Messiah as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, as a reason for the hope that is in you. However, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping your conscience clear, so that when you are accused, those who denounce your Christian life will be put to shame. Now again, that's, the, that's not Paul and Silas seeking justice or revenge or retribution. They trust in the God who will accomplish those things one day if these people don't come to faith. What they do instead is they seek to live a life of good conduct, clear conscience, always proclaiming the gospel, not just with their words, which they've done very clearly in this chapter, but also with their conduct. And again, they do it in the face of their enemies, the people who most deserve to have retribution thrown their way from these guys. They don't do that. Instead, with a clear conscience, they say, if you want to take us out, you can, but we're not going to pursue what we, what we could and we're going to let that speak for itself because of who we've come to know in Christ. Because we were enemies. We were enemies of God. We were opposed to him. We were rebels. And God, in his grace, has not shown us what we deserve. He's instead shown us grace and given us life so that we can pursue and believe in him and have what we don't deserve, because that's who God is. He is a compassionate God, gracious, slow to anger, rich in faithful love. Not punishing sin or wrongdoing the way it's supposed to be deserved, but it's sin in extending his love even to a thousand generations for those who love him. That's Exodus 34. That's who God is, and that's what That's what has been given to us. So when people are opposed to us, when people could be considered our enemies, we preach the gospel to them because we know we've received something far greater. Nothing that can, nothing anyone can do to you as a Christian can touch us. Nothing, no, no person opposed to us can touch your life if it's in Christ. And so you are free then to extend grace, to extend life, wherever you find yourself in that situation. And so again, as we kind of wrap up this section, we ask the question, who is the gospel for? How does that sustain Paul and Silas? Well, it circles back to the initial answer. The gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for these specific groups of people, but the gospel then is also for you. It's for you. It's for everyone. No matter what, no matter where you're at, no matter how you could be defined, there's a, there's a really diverse group of people in this text who the gospel is for. <laughs> the gospel is for you. It's for everyone. Because God, because God offers to make us brothers and sisters. Because God finds us when we're seeking because God sets us free from oppression, from spiritual oppression, and then sets us free to respond freely to physical oppression. Are we a prisoner to sin? The gospel is for you. And again, if you're an enemy of God today, the gospel is also for you. And if you're a Christian today, guess what? 
the gospel is still for you because Paul and Silas show us how to respond in a Christian manner to all to what they experience they show us that their faith is sustained by the gospel no matter how hard their circumstances get so the gospel is still for the Christian it's not just for those who need Christ it's for those who have him because those who have him always need him so that's the end of question number two who is the gospel for so our last section what does the gospel give is how we're going to wrap things up today and there's four specific things that I want to see in this text that the gospel gives and the first thing is one we've kind of touched on already but it's freedom freedom is everywhere in this chapter it's in verses 3 17 through 18 25 through 26 and 35 through 39 It's in a lot of places. And again, it's not just spiritual freedom. It's also, I love this because God uses the circumstances of life to tell the drama of redemption. Like the jailer saw chains falling off of dudes, feeling an earthquake, and he's like, I need salvation. Like, and if you'll think about it, there's another place where a violent earthquake shook something, shook the foundations of something, and things sprang open. And that's where Jesus died and was resurrected. God tells the story of the gospel dramatically through life circumstances. And if you're paying attention, like if you understand like God tells the story of redemption through the circumstances of your life, like people see that. Like that's the idea of this is Paul and Silas get a question from a dude who has no business a- asking this. He's got no exposure to the gospel. He's, he's, not a, he's not a Jew. He's probably a retired soldier, like, living out his life as a prison, as a prison guard. Like, that, that's his deal. He might even have some beef with Jews, because we already see that this place might have some beef with Jews. Like, there's a million reasons why this guy should not have asked this question. But he sees what God is doing through the lives of the people who believe it and says something is different. Something is, I'm being told something that I need to know. And I just think that's incredible. I just think that's incredible. So um, I'll circle back. that The gospel gives freedom. It gives freedom to respond to circumstances where you're, where you might feel imprisoned, but your spirit is free to respond in a manner that's gracious and loving and proclaims the gospel. It offers you freedom in the midst of injustice and suffering and tribulation. And it does. It, it sets us free from the bonds of sin and grants us new life. The second thing that we see that the gospel gives is the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to, to go through verses 6 through 10 here because this is a really peculiar and interesting part of this chapter. So I'm going to read it real quick. It says, They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, that is Paul and Silas, and were prevented by the Holy Spirit from speaking the message in Asia. When they came to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So bypassing Mysia, they came down to Troas. During the night, a vision appeared to Paul. A Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, Cross over to Macedonia and help us. After he had seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us 
to preach the gospel to them. I think the point of this question, point of this little section is actually pretty simple. Like it, it seems like some weird stuff is going on, but it's actually fairly simple. That Christians possess the Holy Spirit, that Christians are to obey the Holy Spirit, and that Christians receive wisdom from the Holy Spirit. The wisdom to understand what the Spirit is commanding you to do. So if you believe this gospel, guess what? That means you have the Holy Spirit. We already talked about this a little bit in the idea of baptism. But when Jesus came up from the waters when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit came down on him. When we're baptized into, into Christ's life, when, when we come to know the gospel and we believe that, God gives us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God himself. Like, it's not just a force. It's not just kind of this, you know, urge or inclination or even empowerment to do something. It's the Holy Spirit is a person. It's a person who is to be obeyed and loved and, and listened to. The Spirit gives us the life of God, which is eternal. And so the Spirit himself is God, so his calling and command are meant to be obeyed, which is what we see Paul and Silas doing. They're obeying the Spirit. Now, their circumstances are pretty particular. Like, they're prevented. They're also forbidden. They receive direct and indirect guidance for what they're supposed to do. It's part of how the Spirit works. And then they conclude that God's called them somewhere else through a vision of the Macedonian man. So they have a discernment process, right? That as they obey and listen to the Holy Spirit, he also works in you to understand how to think through what God is calling you to do. And so I think that's incredible that the Spirit not just gives life, but he also helps you to live it in accordance with what God is calling you to do and commanding you to do. So through the gospel, we receive the Holy Spirit to receive life and receive wisdom and to obey him. The third thing that I see that the gospel gives is the church. And this is uh, mainly highlighted in verses 1 through 5 and then verse 40. That the gospel creates the church and the gospel also creates churches. So when I say church, that's the entire universal past, present, future. Everyone who's ever believed, currently believes, will believe, church universal, God creates the church through the gospel. And he, and he kind of gives us images, right, for how that works. He, gives, he forms them into a temple for his name and his holiness to dwell. We see that image in Ephesians. We see that the, the church is likened to a body which joins and works together in all its different parts for the same goal of honoring and serving the head, who is Christ. And then we see, and most explicitly in this passage, that the church is a family of brothers and sisters. That's a term that Luke uses repeatedly, brothers, brothers and sisters. The gospel creates the church, and that church is a family whose bond is the spirit which is tighter than any, any blood relation we could ever have with anyone. But then when I say churches, I mean that there's miniature physical representations of this giant, big, universal church in specific places and specific times like Lystra and Iconium and Philippi, which we see being founded here, and Raleigh, which is what we all get to be a part of. The gospel creates this church, Churches like this. And he's done it so that we are to so that we can 
believe together, worship together, love together, serve, encourage, rebuke, uplift, strengthen each other. All for the glory of Christ in the bond of the Spirit. And so I think part of what this particular section is telling us is that it's important to be a part of not just the church, but a church. A local church, a miniature representation of what God is building through Christ, through the gospel. So that means for us, like, this is our family. Like, this is our body. This is our temple. Like, the people who form local churches are these things. They represent what God is doing, and and not just represent, but they are what God is doing. Like, we are what God is doing in this world. Like, isn't that incredible? Like, we are what God is doing in this world. That God is calling people to worship and live out a life that is consistent with his character and his holiness to do it eternally. And he says, y'all are going to do it. I'm saving you for this purpose, to be a part of my church. Now, live together as the church and build together as the church. Serve one another, love one another, encourage one another, and share it with each other. This is the, this is the work that we are called to, and so that kind of ties into the last thing that I want to mention that the gospel gives us, which is a mission. Paul and Silas are on a mission this entire chapter. So I'm not going to go th- read through the whole chapter. Don't worry. <laughs> but that's what this chapter is about. It's Paul and Silas on mission. So God gives Christians a specific purpose in this world, which is to make disciples of all people, to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. So no matter where Paul and Silas go in this chapter, no matter what their circumstances are, no matter what's occurring, they are on mission because that's what that's the purpose that God has called them to. So that's how it works with us. So it could be that that's two streets down to go make disciples, or it could be two countries over. It doesn't matter. God may call you to a specific place in a specific time. That's God took Paul and Silas to Macedonia in this specific place in specific time, had, didn't have them go anywhere else. He said, you're going here to do this, to live out, to, to live out the life I've called you to live and to, and to be on the mission I've called you to be on. So that means no matter where we are, no matter where God has called us to be right now or tomorrow or 10 years from now, that calling will always exist and we'll always be able to fulfill that calling no matter where we're at. And so as we close, I want to ask, why does the answer to these questions again sustain, sustain our faith? And specifically this question, what does the gospel give? How does that sustain our faith? Well, it gives you everything you need. Everything you need, no matter what your life looks like, It gives you life and freedom. It gives you a purpose. It gives you a community. And it gives you 
above all things, God himself, the Holy Spirit, to actually enable you and work within you to live out the life he's called you to live and to be who he's called you to be and to live according to the purpose that he's called you to have. And so I just want to encourage us as Christians today as we close just to meditate on these things, to meditate on these things because they're treasures. Like these are the treasures of the gospel. Like in Ephesians it talks about like God pouring out the abundance of his spiritual riches on us. Like these are the riches that we see. We just get to see it in narrative form, not in like how Paul writes Ephesians. Like, so it can be a little harder to see, but it's all still there. It's all still there. So meditate on them, enjoy them, cherish them, and delight in them. Because those actions will actually enable you to live according to the way that God calls you to live. Because you delight in him. Because you enjoy him. Because you cherish him. You give your life to him. And then you share them because the gospel is meant to be enjoyed not just by you, not just cherished by you, but everyone is called to believe this. And so we share it because we, we want to have that same heart. And by God's grace, he gives us that same heart through the Spirit. And if you're a Christian today, my encouragement is just don't delay. Don't delay in believing this because there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved and enjoy these treasures so i pray today if you're not a christian and even my encouragement today if you are a christian believe in the lord jesus believe in what he has done believe in what he is doing and receive that life and live in that life that he's called us to let's pray lord thank you for today Thank you indeed, Lord, just for giving us today. A day in which we can gather around, see your word, understand your word, and through those things see you. See you for who you are, and then, Lord, enjoy you for who you are. Lord, thank you, Lord, that you sustain our faith, that what you give you don't take away. That, Father, nothing can separate us from, the, from you if we are in Christ. Not even life or death. And the idea here is that life can't. That no matter what happens in life to Paul and Silas, no matter what happens to us, that if we believe that you are Lord and that you have taken away our sins, that if we believe that, we receive life, we receive purpose, we receive a people, and we receive those things forever. And so thank you, Lord. We thank you that, uh, that this is who you are and that you are unchangeable in this character and nature. And so, Lord, just help us as we go about this week and, and Lord, even more immediately as we come to the table Lord, to help us meditate on these things. And Lord, to celebrate. To celebrate what you have done for us in Christ. We thank you, Lord, again for today. Help us to live today for you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.